Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro directors here. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to tonight's LSE Arts Public Lecture by Professor Simon Sharma. Uh, Simon's going to speak for about 40 minutes on the topic of on writing, high, low, and everything in between. Uh, and then we'll be taking questions. So now is the time, please, to turn off your mobile phones or anything else that might be annoying. Although, um, <laughs> spam a lot had, had this great moment. Some of you own up, you've seen it. And um, where, you know, Simon Rossville or something said, can we implore the audience to turn on your mobile phones and talk to each other because the show is complete crap? You know, so, well, however. We'll, we'll take a view at about 7.15. <laughs> um, so, well, I was going to say that Simon Sharma really is one of those people uh, that you, you don't have to, give, have to give an introduction to, but I, I, I'm going to give him one, obviously. And, you know, I think your lecture title is very Sharma-esque, if I can say so. Formally speaking, I'll look at my notes, uh, Professor Sharma is the University Professor of Art History and History at Columbia University, which is one of LSE's sister institutions and global partners. His award-winning books include Citizens, A Chronicle of the French Revolution, Landscape and Memory, I think it's a fabulous book, uh, Rembrandt's Eyes, A History of Britain, The Power of Art, Rough Crossings, and The American Future, A History. Uh, his columns for The New Yorker have won the National Magazine Award for Criticism, and his journalism has appeared regularly in The Guardian and The Financial Times, where he's a contributing editor, and he's been interviewing somebody very important recently. You'll probably say that in a moment or two. Uh, Simon's also well known, of course, for his many films for, for TV, including uh, for the BBC, History of Britain, obviously, more recently, The American Future. I didn't know that you'd also won an Emmy for your book, The Power of Art, so not a bad CV, all told. Um, less formally, when, when I think of Simon, I think of him as part of, I hope this is fair, part of a very gifted generation of historians, undergraduates and PhD students at Cambridge in the mid to late 60s, early 70s. So Roy Porter, I think, was one yep. of your contemporaries at yeah. Christ's. So I think was, um, Roy was, I think, one year younger or two years younger. Yeah. Uh, David Canadine, yeah. Linda Colley. Um, at another college, uh, the late and lamented uh, Tony Jutt, of course. Yeah. All, all of you, I think, went on to write works that are obviously very erudite but also readable. And when I was looking at uh, Simon's book, copies of which are outside and will be signed uh, later on, um, I thought it was quite, quite interesting and quite moving that there's an essay there on Jack Plum, who was a very important uh, historian at Cambridge and very important, I think, for, for your yeah. early career and the careers of people like Roy Porter, mm. uh, Linda Colley, I think All she was his yeah. PhD student, yeah. David Canadine. I don't know about Tony Judd. No, not... Um, it kind of made me think how important it was to have an inspiring mentor early in your academic career, even if you disagree uh, with that person. Um, and one of the things that comes through from Simon's book, both in his introduction and in the essay on Jack Plum, is that Jack Plum used to fairly mercilessly correct his students' work and basically took Simon to task for using far too many adjectives. Uh, we don't get a lot of adjectives. Incredible, <laughs> isn't it, really? <laughs> Why would anyone do that? We don't get a lot of adjectives, usually at the LSE. Um, we, we try and cut down on that sort of stuff. How about adverbs? Occasionally. Yeah. Occasionally. Occasionally. Um, this new book, Scribble, 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 I mean, it roams across many of Simon's many, many interests. Um, you know, there's politics, there's baseball, there's Obama, 
There's an essay on erudition in the age of Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, interesting. Eloquence. Eloquence, sorry. Eloquence. Uh, cooking and art. I mean, it's all done with tremendous elan and a tremendous number of adjectives. Um, Jack Plum apparently warned you for adjectival overload. Um, happily, Simon didn't take that into account in his career, so we look forward to an adjectively filled talk <laughs> tonight. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very kind. Um, yeah, I think I, I was going to sort of wander around like a kind of you know bad talk show host, and I, and I, I probably will end up doing that a bit. I don't want to lecturnise, but um, since you know you are so beneath me and you are so above me in, in both metaphorically and typographically, I think I'll sit if that's it, and you can all hear me. And if some of you, some of you want to shout, get on your feet, man, you know, and, and pay attention to us, I, I promise I will. So thank you very much, and I do in fact want to say a word more and um, maybe read a little bit about what I had to say about Jack in, in that essay. But um, yeah, it was very, very important. I want to come on to that in a minute. I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to um, do something slightly unusual, I think, for people who do readings or talks about readings, and that's actually read from other people who did make a big impact on me when I, I was during the, the long period where I, I thought about popular writing and journalism and scholarship as not mutually exclusive, in fact actually almost a requirement. That was one thing Jack Plum did always drum into us, but mutually nourishing. One without the other was sort of half-life, as an historian, never mind about as a writer. But I think before I had anything went near Cambridge, there, you know, there were certain figures um, who uh, I, I couldn't quite classify them. Orwell, of course, was absolutely critical. But Orwell, Orwell, to those of us who grew up in the 1950s and 60s, was, oh God, you know, a mixed blessing in a way. I mean, we felt about George Orwell the way, uh, how many Italians here? Um, none. Addio. Okay. <laughs> how do you feel about Manzoni and I Promesso Sposi? You're looking numb and indifferent. <laughs> yeah. You're looking to say you're on the phone, which is, uh, you took my instruction earlier on to, no. The only reason I say this about Manzoni is that Italian friends of mine, when I say this, always complain that they, they're dead to Manzoni and to that book in particular because they are required. He's so super canonical. You're too young, I think, for that to be the case. But um, friends of mine my age in their 60s always you know, complain they can't go anywhere near Manzoni, really. I don't know what the French equivalent probably would be, Victor Hugo, alas. And that's sort of weirdly how we felt about oil was so obligatory. Um, first of all, we, we, we were, I think, mistaught 1984 as pure political position-taking, really. And that it wasn't until many years later that actually I saw what a staggering piece of ferocious literary craft it actually was all the way through. You know, tempestuous and violent and monstrous and extraordinary and sentimental even at, at particular points. I mean, you don't think about or, or well being, sentimentally patriotic. He was a sentimental patriot, he would have owned up to that. But we couldn't quite, you know, it was, Orwell was held up to our generation. So I'm talking about boys in just about getting into their long trousers about 1957 or something as limpid style. And I recognize whatever style was, I didn't have the limpid version of it. You know, it was already. <laughs> what we did at home, what we did at home was Dickens, you know. And um, it, it was this sort of fantastic knife-sharp 
in the sharpness of Orwell that, that sort of kept me, I mean, shooting an elephant was an incredible revelation, terrifying and amazing. Um, there are many of those Orwell essays that I thought, well, you know, I, I could feel his sort of withering withering gaze on you know, oh my indeed sort of adjectively overstuffed you know already precociously excessively purple bits and we, we read Dickens at home my father read Dickens out loud actually to my sister and I my sister a good deal older and um, so Dickens for me was the kind of operatic play of the English language that was our lodestar and at school again it wasn't just the sort of ferocious sharp economy of the way in which Orwell wielded his prose with this extraordinary sword play dexterity. It was also, um, it was, it was also the, the sense, really, that um, Levisite new criticism had sort of made a very fierce imprint on our school teaching. Again, I'm talking about the mid-50s. Some of the most brilliant school teachers I had, and the most brilliant, Arava Shalom, he's dead, um, was an absolutely kind of doctrinaire Levisite. It had been taught by Harry Williams at Trinity, who was a close disciple of Levis. And, you know, the, the thing about none of you will know, well, again, people my age will. It was a real sort of methodological tyranny almost. Tyranny may be a bit strong, but there literally were banned books, Levis, most of which was Dickens. Um, you were, you, except Hard Times, the most boring one, a mechanical one. <laughs> Um, there's a great story about that, and um, sorry about these digressions, but if you didn't really want digressions, what the hell are you doing here? Um, <laughs> but this is a true story, a true Cambridge story. So Levis occasionally made, you know, flame like Blake, Blake was okay, appearances, and one was, um, did you hear this, Stuart? He talked about, um, he, it was a lecture, I think, about um, Dickens and Tolstoy, and why, why they loved each other, and and sort of inadvertently about why Tolstoy didn't like Shakespeare and so on, but it was really about it was about Tolstoy and Dickens, and um, and and it must have been it was when I was a don, so it was in well into the nineteen seventies, and um, and it was sort of almost love song to Dickens actually, particularly Great Expectations, our mutual friend, and me at last, but it was a big big surprise, and this sort of uh, there was question time came, and um, this woman stood up and said, well. Um, Mr. Levis, it's all very well now, you know, you claiming to extol the virtues of Charles Dickens and Great Acceptations and our mutual friend and Little Dorrit and so on. What about all these years you spent forbidding, you know, and uh, what, you know, what are we supposed to make of that? And she was sort of really quite confrontationally rude and, you know, Levis was not famous for his patience, tolerance and self-control. And, and he said, oh, you, you, you're quite right, there is a sort of wicked... I, you know, I was, I'm so sorry. I do seem to have been very inconsistent. We all thought, not only, you know, did he correct himself? He's being corrected. So I said to a person sitting, but who, who is that woman? She said, oh, Mrs. Leavis. You know, <laughs> wasn't he Queenie Leavis? It's true, it was. Yikes. So we did Dickens at home and, you know, all his mad effulgence and... Um, but the thing was that it was so kind of gripping to us, you know, to me as a small boy, that I sort of lived in Dickensian world. And, and the trouble was that, um, that, you know, my father constantly, he was a wonderfully um, verbal person, and uh, be, you'll be stunned to hear, and sort of bit over the top. And, and he really wanted life in theatre, but he, he mistakenly didn't 
whatever it was, he decided not to do it. And he was sort of very uh, erratic and uh, businessman, really, in, in, in classic Jewish sort of textile way. And he had great moments, but mostly the great moments were, were, were punctuated by moments of panicky near bankruptcy. And my mother used to say, um, you're just Mr. Micawber, you know, and we're all going to the workhouse. And this was not a figure of speech for me. This was, you know, when I was seven. I thought, oh, no. And I, I went out, remember going out to my dad and saying, what's gruel like, dad? And I said, you're not going to like it, bastard. You know, so I said that to me. So, so, so Orwell then, um, Orwell was, was very, very tough, really, for me. I had to kind of rediscover um, Orwell. But um, there were, however, at school, you know, I, I don't know, some mostly friends actually discovered various other writers of, of sharp, the, you know, the sharp craft of the essay. Um, with whom I became early, smitten early, we all were astonished by, um, uh, you know, Pope's essay on the, uh, excuse me, Swift's essay on a modest proposal um, that the solution to the Irish problem was for, for, for the children to be eaten, really. And that, that went down fantastically well on the cusp of the 60s. We love that. And seeing like bad acid trip or something. And, and a friend of mine, told me about William Hazlitt, and, um, um, and I'd never heard of Hazlitt, knew nothing about him. Again, in the grip of Leibisism, um, you weren't supposed to have anything to do with the Romantics. You were allowed to read occasional expeditions into Keats's prose, actually. That was, that was allowed, actually. Shelley was there just for laughs, you know. Um, and so I discovered Hazlitt, and I remember I opened, I, I, this was the, I opened in the school library, plain speaker. This isn't the actual book, but this is from the library, but I, I opened it and it truly fell out on an essay, which, which again, the title of which just absolutely threw me, on the pleasure of hating. That seemed to be so fantastically un-English somehow. And it begins this way, and there is a spider crawling along the matted floor of the room where I sit. He runs with heedless, hurried haste. He hobbles awkwardly towards me. He stops. He sees the giant shadow before him, and at a loss whether to retreat or proceed, meditates his huge foe. But as I do not start up and seize upon the straggling caitiff, as he would upon a hapless fly within his toils, he takes heart and ventures on me with mingled cunning, impudence and fear. As he passes me, I lift up the matting to assist his escape, glad to get rid of the unwelcome intruder and shudder at the recollection after he is gone. A child, a woman, a clown, or a moralist a century ago would have crushed the little reptile to death. My philosophy has got beyond that. I bear the creature no ill will, but still I hate the very sight of it. The spirit of malevolence survives the practical exertion of it. We learn to curb our will and keep our overt actions within the bounds of humanity long before we can subdue our sentiments and imaginations to the same mild tone. We give up the external demonstration, the brute violence, but we cannot part with the essence or principle of hostility. We do not tread upon the poor little animal in question. That seems barbarous and pitiful. But we regard it with a sort of mystic horror and superstitious loathing. 
It will ask another hundred years of fine writing and hard thinking to cure us of the prejudice and make us feel towards this ill-omened tribe with something of the milk of human kindness instead of their own shyness and venom. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. I still do absolutely love Hazlitt. And I thought in the middle of, it seemed to me, the most extraordinarily ferociously candid repudiation of cults of kindness and sentimentality and brotherliness. And, and I was at the same time, you know, wearing proudly my little CND badge and, <laughs> and you know, singing myself hoarse with awful stuff like Kumbaya. We were, you know, as a kind of Kumbaya no main, really. And we were all into sort of, you know, we were all into sort of Marxism and a sort of rustic kind of Zionism as a way, of course, of getting to talk to girls and more than getting to talk to them if we, if we, if we possibly could. So this extraordinary kind of... So I thought really about the kind of sharpness of this, this kind of fierce tradition. And then I learned, as I learned, and lots of you know about Hazlitt, that he isn't... Uh, he, he, even much more than Orwell, journalism for him... And he did, he did absolutely everything. Um, you know, Hazlitt was the first, you're all going to tell me, well, not the first, but the first great sports writer. Sports writing starts around then. And those of you who really know your history of sports writing, uh, especially LSE, LSE, I think, isn't it? Yeah, certainly should be. Um, we'll say, oh, Pierce Egan's famous Boxiana is the first real sports writing. And it sort of is. And Pierce Egan is good if you, if you like uh, fight writing. Um, but... I didn't say fine writing, I said fight writing. But Hazlitt is sent amazing, and the, and the essay called The Fight is one of great mini-masterpieces. But he was also a theatre critic, an art critic, he was a parliamentary reporter, he was a sort of miserable hanger-on in the shadow of Coleridge, who couldn't stand him. Coleridge treated him with, with terrible, sort of, um, brutal contempt. And, and it's clear that Hazlitt was really, really annoying and had this kind of puppy dog adhesiveness, which uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge, when they were living in, in near Dorchester in south, south West England before went up to the lake, just found sort of unbearable. He was really one of those people, you know, you go into a party and you've made a terrible mistake of being very nice to a sort of stalker, you know, a nice stalker, <laughs> not, not literally a stalker. And, and you promise yourself you're going to continue to be nice and uh, called Brian, you know, or uh, um, Sharon, or uh, something any, and and, um, and you go in, and there they are, the first person, you know, stumbling towards you, proffering a glass of Bulgarian Merlot, and it's not a bloody thing. You Obviously, people felt like that about about Paul Hazlitt, and he wrote also, of course. I've even it's so awful. I've actually repressed the name of it, but a kind of extended hymn of love, actually, to a servant girl who he worshipped and idolised, and, um, and it, it, was not, it was not reciprocated. But the thing about Hazlitt was that, that caught me, and still catches me a lot, is that, um, as sort of with Orwell, but I think a fortiori with Hazlitt, um, was that the sense of connection, and Hazlitt did, people read Hazlitt, it wasn't as if he, you know, he, he lived in sort of poverty, but he just come from writing, 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 had to sort of make a living. Um, there was a sort of old impoverished parsonage background there. Um, was that it sort of, you know, he had a mind as actually as philosophically analytically brilliant as Coleridge. He just wasn't formally attuned to German metaphysical idealism, the way Coleridge felt everyone sort of had to be. But, um, but it was the sense in which he would exert his analytical acumen, Hazlitt, in every kind of genre 
a medium of writing he could. And the sort of connection you would make with short journalism was not an ignoble thing for him. And I felt that was, you know, that's, that's sort of a, a really fantastic tradition, really, in, in English writing. Um, that amazing sort of plasticity, the ability to uh, empathise, for once I think I'm trying to use the word correctly, be in the position of your readers or your audience or an audience at the play, the show you're reviewing or people coming into a public gallery, that tremendous needy, needy connection with your reader is what Hazlitt has. And I realised sort of that, you know, that's... I suppose the difference between Hazlitt and Orwell was that Orwell has this extraordinary kind of imperiousness about him, doesn't he? I mean, it is magnificently exerted and very, very hard to say. If, if uh, speaking of the fight in a boxing match, and maybe it will take a vote, really, sort of Orwell in the blue corner and Hazlitt in the, in the red, I'm not sure who would win. I think ultimately, ultimately Orwell probably, because when Orwell is in absolutely spectacular song. He's almost a dramaturge of the essay. How many of you have read Tolstoy, Lear and the Fool? Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Just simply, go, well, everybody go out and read it, and there will be an exam. Um, <laughs> we'll want your papers in tomorrow. It's an unbelievable thing because, and, this, and it would be a crime, wouldn't it, my two friends here who've read it, to give the game away. But there is some, something happening in that essay. Um, which is about why Tolstoy hates Shakespeare and cannot understand anyone who has any time for Shakespeare, in particular the tragedies. And um, Orwell is wondering about this in, in a puzzled way. And he shapes that particular essay with just, you know, almost like some film director. He withholds from you something in the essay that you see dimly coming at you. And it's an insight of such extraordinary brilliance that it, you think, oh, of course, and I, you know, of course, of course, why didn't I see that? So that makes you all want to read it, right? And you should. And so I think that, that uh, high voltage all was sort of unbeatable. But, you know, Hazlitt was pretty amazing. If, if, I, if I was ha the Hazlitt trainer, I'd come back with the Indian Jugglers, which is, the, which is again, a, a, also a micro masterpiece. And, I can't, and I'll stop reading from this in a minute and say about how I came there. I mean, you're getting the sense of why I, a particular kind of journalism, a kind of essayistic um, journalism that I aspire to as not in contradiction with scholarship or speculative um, uh, history, but on the contrary, almost a kind of indispensable condition of it. This is Hazlitt's The Indian Jugglers. Coming forward and seating himself on the ground in his white dress, um, Hazlitt, unlike George Orwell, um, it, uh, one of the things I love about Hazlitt, it's true of his sports writing, is uh, things begin, it becomes a Victorian mannerism, but a good mannerism, in media race. You know, where Carlyle begins the French Revolution with the kind of what seems bizarre, irrelevant um, disquisition on naming in the Ancien Regime on names of kings and aristocrats. Louis XV gradually staggers into view, um, syphilitic and dying and corrupt. And then, but but he, Carlyle said he wanted to open a window through which your boot would smash. And I love this in media race, immediate sort of storytelling scene settings. So the Indian drunkers coming forward and seating himself on the ground in his white dress and tightened turban. The chief of the Indian jugglers begins with tossing up two brass balls, which is what any of us could do, and concludes 
or is keeping up four at the same time, which is what none of us could do to save our lives, nor if we were to take our whole lives to do it in. Is it then a trifling power we see at work, or is it not something next to miraculous? It is the utmost stretch of human ingenuity, which nothing but the bending the faculties of body and mind to it from the tenderest infancy with incessant, ever anxious application up to manhood can accomplish or make even a slight approach to a man. Thou art a wonderful animal, and thy ways past finding out. And, and it's really, an, it's just a marvellous account of a kind of minor piece of juggling in a seedy tavern somewhere. And out of it comes this wonderful kind of slightly mad meditation on, on human, human faculties. So <clears throat> I realized when, when, I, when I got to Hazlitt that you know, the things I'd been doing as a kid, as a boy, my sort of hunger for kind of popular journalist writing for the school magazine, and then when in Cambridge newspapers, what was to do with was trying to exercise a kind of artful faculty that was imaginative and polemical at the same time, in which sort of the imagination and the polemical skill existed sort of side, side by side. Um, had an early, early introduction to a kind of Orwellian polemics because um, I talk about this in the in the introductory essay to Scribble, 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 um, and um, uh, the uh, <laughs> the the imposing figure who ran the school magazine, which is called Skylark, probably still is, um, was the son of a distinguished, um, quite fiercely left wing Labour MP. Um, and the war in the, the uh, guerrilla campaign, terrorist campaign, the Aoka campaign in Cyprus was in full swing. And the son of the MP was you know, ferociously sympathetic, of course, to, um, to the, in, the armed insurrection. <laughs> and, um, and he was only editing the, the, the school magazine um, so that you could staple inside it, really, ferociously treasonous tracts, actually. It was, this was fantastically exciting if you were 12 years old, so we loved it. And we stored it in the back of the, the, the sweet kind of school librarian's office, poor Mr. Sanderson, who was surprised when a figure in a bowler hat, you know, belonging to MI6, turned up at school one day, actually, <laughs> and, and detained Mr. Sanderson and my, my friend, the editor, <laughs> comes from a very famous family. That was, that was just amazing to me. Um, and we never got up to anything quite that um, glamorously seditious, actually, in university. But I was very, uh, all the time, there was a choice, really. I don't know, there probably wasn't a choice, but it seemed to me a choice, apart from sort of trying to be a good historian or, you know, do one's work. Um, you were either, and Hazlitt has a wonderful essay, actually, about the incompatibility of writing and speaking. He said most people just can't do you know, both. <laughs> and uh, after about another 20 minutes of this, you may agree with him, actually. <laughs> um, but um, um, you went to the union. You, you either were a sort of debater in the union um, or you really did, did journalism. And um, I, I sort of stuck my toe in the union. Uh, but it was a sort of strange place. I remember um, going into the union chamber and this amazing patrician figure um, sort of showed up, you know, to recruit us sort of, you know, begrim prematurely begrimed, inevitably sort of pretentiously pipe-sucking, you know. Um, why does the word three nuns still fill me with horror, really? <laughs> we even try 
and the words shag tobacco. You know, I don't want to shag tobacco. No, really, nor does anyone in the right mind. And um, so the, the, the patrician figure said, he actually said, um, and you know, there, there were plenty of women in the chamber, but he said, um, said, said, good morning, boys. My name is Weaver, comma. Oliver Weaver. He didn't say comma, but you know. So I thought this is a nightmare. I don't. I, I hate. You know, I hated the idea of public school anyway. I don't want to be part of it now. So I persevered a bit. Um, one of the presidents of the union subsequently became Britain's least successful post-war chancellor of the Exchequer, and David Cameron's um, <laughs> boss at the time of the ERM crisis, um, who should be nameless. He's called Norman Lamont, and. Um, <laughs> And, um, and, but the thing was, they knew how hard I wanted to live a unburden myself with passionate political polemics, because they always you know, gave me motions like, this house does not much care for sausage rolls, or something like that. It was sort of completely, I always used to get the clown. I so badly wanted to be the hamlet that I got the clown. So, so I went, the energies went, I thought, no, it's not for me. And... Um, did journalism and, and we and did quite a lot of it and we, we founded a paper in a friends of mine in competition with the um, which didn't last after we left it called New Cambridge fatal calling things new because they're obsolete before you've really got edition four out and then then I became editor of something called Cambridge Review anyway so I knew in some sense there was this part of me I mean I'd been taken as a little boy to I think the offices, I think it was the sort of, that one, one Fleet Street was still Fleet Street, and there were still literally men in green eyeshadow, and there really was hot metal. My Harry Evans, who was briefly, I worked for the Sunday Times in the great um, Grayson Road days of Harry Evans, only because a mate of mine um, had got a job there, Robert Lacey, and he sort of farmed stuff out. In particular, in the late 60s, um, the Sunday Times wanted to, um, it wanted to deal with the phenomenon that people stopped Often it's hard to believe this now. Um, buying it in on we on summer weekends, so they invented the color supplement. It was called the color magazine to make people want to, you know, uh, the circulation be figures kept up during the summer. But they wanted really a kind of wheeze in the in the color supplement, which would make people come out week after week after week. So uh, they, they um, Godfrey Smith, lovely Raytown Godfrey Smith and Robert invented this thing called a thousand makers of the 20th century. Um, Private Eye ran a wonderful parody. It began inevitably, of course. It was completely alphabetical. You've got 400 words on, you know, um, Einstein, say, oh, piece of cake. You tell people all about theory of relativity, and who needs 400 words? That is a nightmarish thing that we got ourselves into. And it began with Alvar, Alto Alvar, you know, and Private Eye's parody invented some other Finnish architect called our soul shove it up, you know, and um, uh, <laughs> very funny. And um, and I got, you know, I used to go in. I, my job were all the poli- all the political pieces and all the historical pieces. But in so being, I moonlit as a young don. I would go back to Cambridge and teach Peter Abelard or Adlai Stevenson, or Peter Abelard meets Adlai Stevenson on, on <laughs> Tuesdays, and then I would moonlight down to London and I would do all sorts of journalism. I worked for um, Early Time Out. I worked for Tony Elliott. On, oh, excuse me, I worked for the crazed Australian. Um, Richard Neville on um, Oz and Inc. Yeah, I did. I worked for Inc., which was you know doomed enterprise. I worked a little bit for Oz. Yeah, did you know? Did you know? Did you know? I didn't know Richard? that you worked for Oz. Oh yeah, I did. I bought yeah. it. Yeah, no, I did a bit. I'm ashamed to say. Yeah, it was mostly you couldn't really think because the air was mostly you know the office 
you couldn't breathe except unless you wanted to get high, actually. It was a sort of involuntary, involuntary delirium, really, actually. Um, yes, yes, I was doing all those things. And, um, and, um, and trying to be a good Don at the same time uh, as well. And so it was very much a kind of, you know, I'm not quite sure which part of me ought to have the upper hand. I suppose I spent ever since then, we're now in the mid-60s, you know, making it a moot point, really trying to multitask between those two tones. I did know, though, and here we do come to Jack Plum, and his, you know, who was very difficult, sometimes even a malicious person, but he was an extraordinary charismatic teacher. And he did indeed, it is no coincidence, you know, and one could extend the list to Jeffrey Parker, and, you know, so many, so many people went through. And the, I, I think what made it possible was Plum's insistence that history really was a kind of civic craft that, that you never... He gave me my first book review when I was still an undergraduate. I got $15 for it. It was for the Saturday Evening Post. That's how old I am. It was a... Um, I remember the book. It was a very good history of the Battle of Waterloo by a man called David Howarth, based closely on original sources. It was a wonderful book. And I, I, the check, it was so exciting to get a check in dollars. It just 15 of them. I framed it. I still, still got it. And Plum's message was that not only, as I said, was scholarship and popular writing not in a kind of zero-sum game, but actually you, you were the less a, a scholar if you didn't you know, master a popular kind of writing as well, and, and vice versa. You, you, it, you would really just be a trivial writer if you didn't have a very strong sense of archively-based scholarship. And that was, a, that was a real war that was going on. I mean, it's a little dramatic to call that. Intellectual conflict, let's call it, in Cambridge, really at the height of the 60s. In the mid-60s. And it has a great, you know, an, 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 I think, interesting... How long have I been going on for? How long have I gone? As long as you want. Uh, <laughs> so dangerous, no one, really. Um, but, you know, it goes back to what happened, um, you'll all know, um, in the 18th, particularly in, in the late part of the 19th century, when history started to develop positivist pretensions, J.B. Bury saying history is a science. There was kind of great consummation of history being a form of humane philosophy, really, which the consummation with Lord Acton, you know, this is a German historian, almost before, in the sense of his seminarium training, a Coleridge tradition before he was anything else. So history teaching from the past was Acton, but then, then it became you know, uber-positivist, really. It was a, became, went to a kind of neo-Rankian Wissenschaft. That's what it was. And in England, um, it took incredibly sophisticated forms in the shape of Maitland's medieval history at Cambridge, and they're very dogmatic forms in the shape of Bishop Stubbs, who founds the English Historical Review in something like 1888, and, but who's extremely concerned, in a sort of admirable way, to... Um, eliminate vulgarity in historical writing. And he looked with horror at Cambridge and saw that Charles Kingsley had been Regis Professor. And he, for him, the, 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 the nadir of what flirtation with popular writing could do to scholarship had been reached with Carlyle and Carlyle's relationship with Dickens. Um, Carlyle, briefly friend of Dickens, and you know, made his library available for Dickens to study when he was writing it out. And all of that was repellent and amateurish to Stubbs, and Stubbs really felt in this sort of half-monastic, half-positivist way that really the historian's duty was monkishly to uh, closet himself in the archive and be an editor of documents, essentially, of manorial roles, of medieval charters, of parliamentary statutes, 
And the, the statutes and the charters, of course, would have commentaries on and they would be edited. But essentially, history then would speak itself. It was a transparent, once read of the dirt and filth of amateurish, subjective you know, um, Bishop Stubbs would say women's magazine journalism. Stubbs thought girls, as he said, were unfit, actually, to read history at school. It's deeply shocking. So a sense of kind of monastic austerity, the way historians ought to, ought to study their subject, was, became deeply implanted. And, what that, and it was so victorious, really, this view, not so much in Cambridge, where not just because of Bury, but because of Seeley, J.R. Seeley's imperialism and the stronger connection that Cambridge history had with the sort of educational of the ruling classes in the empire and in the, in the diplomatic service, but very strongly in, in Oxford, it, it utterly it, it cut the knots that have brought imaginative writers and writers of fiction together with, um, with scholars. And the two went off in their, in their different directions. You know, no writer of history could have been more despised in the 1920s than, than H.G. Wells you know, in, in his capacity as a history writer. All this was sort of joke. And then by the time you got to... But there was one, one huge exception who somehow struggled on and was sort of given a place in Cambridge, partly because he represented a sort of amazing immemorial patrician um, tradition that connected to... George Otto Trevelyan and to Macaulay, and, and this figure was Sir George Trevelyan, the kind of flinty, austere, Calvinist, northern landowner, G.M. Trevelyan, who was Jack Plum's teacher. Trevelyan, younger, like his uncle, um, and indeed like Macaulay, represented the defiant insistence on the glory of analytical narrative. Narrative needing analysis, but the analysis always needing narration. And even though they had a very, very difficult relationship, Plum was indeed, you know, coming from Leicester, petty middle class, grocer's son, um, just went to Leicester University, which Jack always used to say, 80, stu 80 students, five faculty, and a hall porter who taught botany. I'll never know if that's actually <laughs> true or not. Um, but he and, and C.P. Stowe used to make a thing about this. And, um, it, and, and even though Plum was, you know, sort of, he didn't have warm memories towards Trevelyan, he did realise in Trevelyan something that was in danger of perishing inside the professionalisation of the discipline in universities had been weirdly preserved in, in ASPIC. So fast forward to the 1960s, and you had really the very soul and descent, the apostolic descent from Bishop Stubbs in, of course, G.R. Elton, who's, you know, um, the, the, the person who you didn't mention, because he wasn't a Jack Plum student, was because David Starkey. And David was, was Jeffrey Elton's prize student, very unhappy. I mean, there were a lot of really great things about G.R. Elton, but he was, he was, he and Maurice Cowling were, were really, uh, were, were tough. And, and Elton was incredibly tough on David, and David wasn't out of the closet yet. And, they, and uh, but the, but the, the, the Plum-Elton war was, wow, it was, it was Jacobins and Girondins. It, it, it was Mensheviks and Bolsheviks. It was unsparing. Jobs were blocked off, depending on who. Um, and, uh, and Plum's insistence was not just a sort of intellectual objection to the notion that if you did popular writing, you were fouling your nest. He brought people into Christ's who were regarded as... Um, by, by the Eltonians, really, as sort of intrinsically ridiculous. And many of that, which they weren't. Um, and it's surprising when I was thinking about what I wanted to say to you, you know, surprising again, 
There is a real gender, gender text to this whole story where women, Francis Yates, nothing ridiculous about Francis Yates, you know, we now think of automatically as kind of supreme pioneer of the study of, um, of the occult, of Neoplatonist mysticism, Giordano Bruno, um, the Illuminati, I mean, just an amazing scholar, actually, an iconographer. But Francis Yates was thought of as, you know, absurdly fringe, sort of Margaret Rutherford character, dabbling in Ouija boards or something, you know. Um, Jack brought Elizabeth Longford, Antonia Fraser's mum, I remember, in, who, um, who, you know, was writing her biography of um, Queen Victoria. Fantastic book. Um, Barbara Tuckman, again, you know, patrician, Jewish from, from Coscob in Connecticut, you know, sort of... Um, <coughs> Oh dear, The Proud Tower, the 1914 book, absolutely extraordinary book, great book on biblical archaeology, which I'm using now in my sort of Judaic archaeology project um, called Bible and Sword. And a really wonderful woman. And they were all women as you, of a certain age. You know. I'm not saying that there was Helen Cam, of course there were women historians in Cambridge then, but, but they themselves, I think, had to distance themselves from these you know, really beautiful sharp, clever practitioners, actually, of popular <laughs> historical writing. And there were, you know, others Jack brought in too, but there were, the, the, the model for us was, was actually putting those wires together. You know, occasionally, I spent too much time sort of, you know, in the kind of pot fumes of Richard Neville's office, actually. Um, and, uh, and it took a long time. To, Roy Porter and I were... were Stuart may remember this, we were generally held to be um, it, the, the two historians at Cambridge in the kind of plum, um, you know, sort of, the little sort of plum senatla, um, who would never write books, actually. <laughs> actually, it may be why we, uh, we then sort of overcorrected, possibly. Um, let me read you just a little bit. I, I, I will, I'll, I'll stop in, in ten minutes or so. Here is here is my little essay on Plum, which appears in a, a, a wonderful book. I mean, my essay. Um, uh, oh, no, this is actually, re oh, excuse me, it's, a, it's a, an edition. It was a revised edition that, that um, my friend Neil Ferguson decided to do of Plum's book. Not very good book, actually. A very unplummy book, actually, in, in terms of what called The Death of the Past, which is different between... Uh, I mean, Jack always used to say that, you know, you have to think of um, Herodotus as a kind of sort of mad poet singing in the marketplace. And I think we, I think we rather sang the Historia, but certainly we know that, that from scholars like Walter Ohm and so on, that history in, in Greek antiquity, if not in Roman antiquity, but certainly in Greek antiquity, was, was in the kind of Homeric tradition almost written in order to be, to be spoken out loud. So it was very wired to a kind of tribal chronicle tradition. So, and in Herodotus, of course, actually, the lines between myth, mythic imagining, and actual chronicle of the war against the Persians, very, very fuzzy. Um, the past may or may not have been dead when J.H. Plum pronounces obsequies, but those of us who were taught by him in Cambridge in the 60s, the, to those, the author was unforgettably alarmingly alive. Whatever stereotypes of those of us arriving at Christ College in 1963 might have had about history dons, a first encounter with Jack Plum in his rooms, a small man with a perfectly round bald head, seated in a big armchair, natally dressed in a three-piece crisply tailored suit, a high-coloured German street striped shirt, and bow tie swiftly saw off the cliché of 
tweeds and amontillado. Display cases poured brilliant light onto Sèvres porcelain in kingfisher blue and rose pink. The walls were filled with Dutch still life and genre paintings. A young man, this is one of the paintings, with a weak chin and get-me whiskers, a mournful bar girl with too much sallow cleavage, an arrangement for hock and lemons. Not a bottle of sherry to be seen, but decanters of Chateau Fijac. When Plum spoke, and especially when he chuckled, as he often did, the effect of Voltaire in the Fens was complete. But there was a serious price to be paid for all this epicurean dazzlement, bestowed on clever but slightly stunned youth, all of us, can I me, intellectual Roy, um, John Brewer, of course, very important figure in this group, intellectual survival under intense and unsparing fire, as Stuart was alluding to. Plum was famously tigerishly combative, though also affable and witty, his conversation punctuated by bursts of laughter at the follies of humanity past and present which academia itself he made clear offered the richest trove and I'll go on a little bit but Plum was withering about academic writing Mm. Um, in particular the obligation to begin a book with introduction and end it with conclusion and a sort of strange metal spine onto which one would have to kind of deploy one's scholarship the sort of odd and he, he said, well, it's like some, you know, strange Freemasonry of, you know, crochet workers or something. We all speak only each other's language and don't really care about anybody. And crochet workers hate the embroiderers or hate the tapestry makers. And he said, and we are teaching our, you know, graduate students in to speak crochet language only, you know. And this was a terrible thing to do for him. His temper was naturally quizzical, sardonic, gleeful, but it was impossible amidst the gales of irony that swept through the room on the subject of some hapless figure not to be nervous one might be ne- the next for the treatment. The slightly exophthalmic eyes glittering from behind his spectacles round would fix steadily and expectantly on whomever a plum, question, joke or challenge alighted. Abashed thoughtfulness was not a possible response, nor was any sort of laboured earnestness. Anyone suspected of being serious about religion was subjected, subjected to a philosophical barrage of teasing which could turn punishingly picador. Most of the wounding, though, happened in the intense hour of history supervisions in those rooms when we read our essays, our hearts sinking to our boots, should Jack begin to fidget ominously in the yellow upholstered chair. When it went well, the praise was fulsome, went straight to our giddy heads like champagne, but for some, it seldom did go well. Come six in the evening, the remains of large undergraduates could be seen collapsed in trembling exhaustion in the college buttery after an unhappy hour with Plum, dosing themselves with healing pints of Watney's, repenting solecisms uttered on the Merovingians, and swearing never to go through it again. But we all did. (laughs) I just want to say that the other figure, um, who was very important to me, um, as someone... Because I guess I I wasn't, you know... Despite his, you know, benevolent attack on adjectival excess... Um, he knew I had to be the kind of writer I was going to be, needed tidying up, and he would spend, oh, young faculty up there. Um, Jack would really, when one you know, surrendered essays, as more often one did than read them out in advance, he, he, he could spend a good 15 minutes on one paragraph that one had written, actually. It was a fantastic training, like the best publishing editor you ever have, and it would take account of what you were saying, but in just as important as the way you said it. The other figure, because there were no seminars on 18th century Europe and the French Revolution. That, as you know, sort of became my thing. 
um, in Cambridge. I used to sort of motor, to, first of all, to John Roberts through the endless sprout fields of Bedfordshire to Oxford. And, um, and there was a magic place. The seminar of Richard Cobb at Balliol College, and again, an amazing group of people, Colin Lucas, Alvin Hufton, Marianne Elliott, on and on, it was an extraordinary thing. And Richard was, was also, I suppose, what they looked not only occasionally taught like Voltaire, but actually looked like Voltaire, and indeed there was a pl plaster reproduction of Houdon's very bust of Voltaire. And Richard was a French Revolutionary historian who'd studied in a way which Plum had studied with um, Trevelyan. Richard had studied with the uh, great Marxist Georges Lefebvre and had written a, a doctor, he'd written a thèse d'état, he'd written one of these gigantic you know, immense pieces of work on the peasants of Normandy, on the Armée Révolutionnaire, actually, which were the price enforcers of the French Revolution. And um, Richard actually was, he, he, once he'd thrown off Marxist determinism, boy, did he throw it off. He was a terrible drunk, but mostly he, um, he just couldn't hold his liquor, and he liked a lot of it. But he lived; he was completely bilingual. He was extraordinary in many, many ways. Again, if you're not familiar with the writer, you, you really, really should be. David Gilmore um, produced a, a, a wonderful anthology of, of, of some of Richard's writing. Um, and here's the way, and there was a kind of, among Richard Cobb's passions were the more free associative, slightly kind of lunatic, poetic French writers. So Richard, as you might expect, sort of hated Flaubert, but loved Quesnot and Céline. I mean, he loved Céline. And here's the end. I mean, here's the, the opposite to a, 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 a book which, you know, has a conclusion. Richard's books never had introductions or conclusions. This was a, a huge liberation for me. This is sort of really how I wanted to write. And Richard was very, he was so temperamentally opposite, really, but he was so encouraging to me. Um, and this is a, an extraordinary book, absolutely, you know, massively archival. Richard did that, essentially. Um, uh, and it's about, it's called Police and the People, but it really is about famine and dearth in the, in the French Revolution. And here's the last, and I'll, I think I'll finish, because I, I could read a bit more of me, but what the hell, you can read that. Um, I, I'd love you to listen to this. And this, to me, this is how young historians, you should be writing. This is how you should be writing. And it's, it's about what happened after the Jacobins have fallen, and somehow the winters are even worse, and people are dying in even greater numbers, and just despair takes over. Hunger employs its own outriders. Those who have already experienced it can see it announced, not only in the sky, but in the fields, scrutinized each year with increasing anxiety, week by week, during the hot summer months, by 30 million anxious eyes, in the figures for grain prices on the markets, in the amount of movement on rivers and roads, in the traffic of the barrier, smugglers coming through the customs barriers, in the conversation of visiting countrymen, the letters of country relatives, or the dis discreet decrees of government, in the unspectacular efforts of municipalities to extend the limits of their cemeteries, in the number of times two men carrying a covered object emerge from a hospital by night, in unusually massive orders of quicklime, in the dispatch of a food commissioner to Genoa, to Geneva, to Hamburg, to Bern, to Tunis, to Copenhagen. Do not ever be afraid of lists. Rabelais wasn't. Why the hell should you? In the prayer, if, if, if your professor says, 
you know, too many items in this sentence, ignore it. In the prayers of the pious or the secret sermons of barn priests, in the cards of Diseurs de Bonaventure, for whom famine was a better customer than marriage, violent death, war, or success in money or in love, in the anxious faces of women or in the pallor of those who've eaten dead war horses, in the sword worn by an imprudent mare, in the shadow thrown at a certain hour of the day, seen from a certain angle, of a certain statue in a certain town. It is something that comes by stealth, without fanfare, yet preceded by a thousand imperceptible signs that the 18th century marginal could pick out, just as those who were in the know, the mayor, the borough engineer, and the members of the rat killers department knew that Gaston, with his broad brown and black back, the size of a largish mastiff, I love that, largish mastiff, displayed behind drawn curtains in his cardboard box, was just one of a race of invaders, a new race of giant rats already in possession of the city and waiting only for the signal to come up from the sewers and take over. And that is how professors of history should write. I think my first word has to be crikey. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to be polite and open it up for questions, yep. partly because I can't really think of the question that I want to ask, but I, I think it has something to do with why it is that your writings and prose involve so many proddings and provocations. And it's, it's very generous. It, it made me think of a number of things. My dad went to Leicester University oh, really? after the war and got a wow. University of London degree. Maybe it was a contemporary yeah. chance. I think it's yeah. highly unlikely that this, un, this unusual Finnish architect, our souls shoved up here, <laughs> has ever been mentioned in this hallowed form before. <laughs> and lastly, I mean, I don't want to be too parochial, but I mean, I, I was also at Cambridge, and this is a true story. The very first lecture I went to as a state school boy from southern Birmingham, this, this large man who was known as Mr. Caesar walked in, he was the senior tutor at St. Catherine's, and he shouted at us, there were about 80 men and 20 women as we described ourselves, boys, left-hand margin, <laughs> straight <laughs> line. This can't be what Cambridge is about. Later on I found out that his name was Augustus Caesar, and, and here I top you, he had a twin brother called Julius. Julius, yes. Right. Absolutely, absolutely true. You never try and top me. There was a moment... <laughs> Because there was a moment in a Peterhouse common room, um, and, and the Don, who made Trevor Ebert's life hell, called Edward Norman, um, had been waiting for this moment, and I saw it coming. I saw it. I saw, no, excuse me, no, it was Trevor Ebert. It was Trevor Ebert himself. I did get it wrong. And Trevor Ebert had been persecuted by Norman, uh, by Edward Norman, who, who Trevor Ebert was regarded bizarrely as too left for Edward Norman. And one day, of course, um, an American professor, all innocent to this kind of tremendous vendetta going on, and he, poor man, was called Jack Saxon, um, in which point Trevor merely uh, moved towards him and said, Norman Saxon, Saxon Norman, <laughs> and then burst into a kind of, hey, sort of tinny laugh, actually. No one knew what the hell was to Almost as good. We'll call it a draw. Yeah, um, no, I think you win, actually. Uh, well, I think now we're, we're ready to open up to, to questions. Do you want to take them one at a time or in groups? Um, I do. One time, yeah. Okay. Yes, gentleman here. Uh, if you just wait for a second, Mike will come to you. And if you could just introduce yourself, that would be really nice. Um, 
Professor Sharma, John Perry. Before I heard you tonight, is that all right? Yeah. Yes. Before I heard you tonight, I thought the only great admirer of Hazlitt that I'd come across was Michael Foote. Uh, and he knew the thing word perfect. He yeah. could tell you word for word from Hazlitt why Midsummer Night's Dream should <laughs> never be played, but was such poetry it should just be said or read. Now, my question to you is this. Michael had every word of Hazlitt off, who was a great theme of common sense, as well as all the things you said. He followed an R. and Bevan, who in two sentences could put government or history together, and yet he led the Labour Party into the silliest campaign of its history and ended life when I talked to him late in his life, mm. as if the only thing that mattered was getting rid of atomic energy. <laughs> Why could a man like Michael Foote, who was pretty clever, know all the people you've been telling us about mm. and end up so foolish? <laughs> Dear, um, I, rather, I rather loved Michael Foote, um, I, I knew very a, a little bit, um, but I think... Um, and I, I really am pondering deliberately. I, I think, uh, and by the way, I would say that it's that there, there, there are lots of terrific books actually on Hazlitt. Tom Paulin um, wrote a wonderful book actually about about Hazlitt, and um, there was a recent biography as well um, by a man with Korean name, though so he's not Korean of Hazlitt, but it escapes him. But uh, the, what I was going to say was, I think actually for people like the Foots, both of them. Um, uh, the, the, the line between Hazlitt and Orwell, Hazlitt was really part of um, a sort of romantic plebeian um, writing tradition. Tom Paine would be in there, Dean Swift would be in there too, particularly plebeian about Dean Swift. And that they, in a sense, were um, a treasure trove of... Um, the thing about Hazlitt, of course, actually, and, um, is, is that it's not just dry analytical smartness. It's that there's a huge amount of unruly passion in the essays, whether he's dealing with boxers or politicians, and, um, and a sort of ferocious, which Orwell shared, ferocious contempt for the mediocre, um, for the time server, for the polite fashion. I think it was that part of Hazlitt, really, which sort of fed into Michael Foote's own you know, stormly, one wants to call it sort of socialist evangelicalism, really. I mean, without, without the Christian sectarian implications of that. So, um, you know, Edward Thompson, of course, E.P. Thompson, you know, wrote a kind of masterpiece in the sort of his, his history of the making of the working class. He, Edward was really like that as well. You know, Edward was one of the most ferocious, unforgiving left-wing minds ever, but he was also a great turbulent tempestuous romantic. Also, of course, a great nuclear disarmer, too. So, I, I, I mean, you're right in the sense in which you, you would think that the kind of analytical light, really, shone by Hazlitt would... would, would dis and, and Michael Foote was quite old when he became leader of the Labour Party, really. Um, and in some sense, you could feel that he would want to fly what was left of the red flag and be damned with a kind of miserable pragmatism that he would have associated with Will, Wilsonian and Callahanian compromise, I think. It's my best answer. It's a very good question. Yeah. Yep. Take one down here, then we'll go upstairs. Gentleman, middle of the front right. Uh, 
thank you very much. Adam Glinsman. Um, I have one observation with thanks and then a question. I've always tried to figure out why, when I was a, at a small grammar school on the South Coast, my Cambridge-educated history teacher, if he thought my language was getting too florid, <laughs> would chuck a book on Churchill at me, a book by Churchill at me, and then chuck Orwell at me, <laughs> with, typically with a string of expletives following it. Um, and as somebody who was, uh, I was clearly brought up in the, in, with the notion that Orwell was an archetype of how to mm. write yeah. both political history, historical narrative, mm. and actually journalistic narrative. Yeah. But thank you for filling that little piece of my own personal jigsaw. The question I have was, I think uh, what really blows me away about your, your writing is actually on the art history side mm -hmm. and the ability to, to tease out kind of sensory perception actually through the narrative. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder whether you had consciously, I mean, I, I haven't, haven't made a scan of the, the, the book, but whether you, have, you do consciously change your style when you're writing about I don't talk about that at all. What, what, what a kind history. question. Um, I, um, very extraordinary thing, I think sort of for a long time, I, was all, I, was all, I always thought of, a bit like Monsieur Jourdain discovering prose, you know, that, that arts were in some sense text, which is not to be reductionist and determinist, saying they do the same thing as text, but I knew instinctively there was something wrong, that they had their own valency. There was something wrong when Goya's 3rd of May was stuck in the middle of a book about Napoleonic Europe as if it was a photograph or a sort of literal illustration. I knew that that painting, of course, it has a Christian message, you know, the stigmata actually appearing on the hand of the machine gun, of the, of the gun down figure. I always knew they had their own text that was irreducible to other kinds of text, but I, I didn't have any... It was only when I read a book really um, um, uh, changed about the Panofsky's book called <coughs> Meaning... I want to say meaning in visual history helped me someone, I think, or meaning in arts history. I mean, and there's a wonderful essay called Iconography and Iconology, and that really did, the iconology part of it actually talked about the independent life of the eloquence of images. Iconography was just really the figuring out of the syntax and the grammar and the vocabulary of whatnot. And I'd always sort of had that, but I never, I, I, it was a, I realized my first very windy, rather, uh, no disrespect to Gibbon, who was a scribble, but my brother, overly orotund first, surely not, yes, um, Patriots and Liberators, um, which was about the experience of the Dutch in the period of the French Revolution, the 18th century Dutch, how incredibly important um, images were in, in that period to the Dutch, not just engravings and caricatures, but um, dealt political tiles, delft tiles, engraved goblets, glasses, all. and I was sort of totally, somehow, even though I was a little Annaliste and reading Bredel and Mark Bloch, and I was somehow sort of had a tin ear for how to, you know, make this happen in, in embed it um, without it being illustrative, mechanically illustrative. And then, while I was working on this, John Gross, you know, he knew I was working on things Dutch, he just said, we're going to start um, reviewing uh, art shows, and I think we just, you know, we talked about Dutch art in particular, and um, he got me starting to do um, the first, very early in the, in the 70s, art reviews for the TLS, and, and it, it is a really answer to the question. I thought I absolutely couldn't 
I didn't want to do academic art historical language too, and I had tight deadlines. And that reappeared when Tina Brown and my friend Adam Gopnik went to live in Paris. They needed a, you know, a sort of regular beat art critic. And I did that for four or five years in, uh, on The New Yorker. And then really, you had to be extremely nimble, very, very quick. Um, Robert Hughes is a friend of mine, and he gave me one great advice, never go to an opening, only go while the show is being installed, or go with the public. And he's absolutely right. Mostly openings are about, you know, sort of checking out who else is there and drinking horrible Chardonnay. And, um, you know, so he was absolutely right. And, um, and that was the sort but so I do, it, it, the book called Hang Ups actually has a large collection of those New Yorker pieces. There are one or two in, in the new book. But, 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 I want to say that it depends on what the art historical exercise is, that some of the, um, two of the essays in this book are much, much longer. In fact, they're sort of too long, actually, and I think a little really bad. Didn't have quite that sort of mercurial quality, which I enjoyed when fighting a deadline. An essay on Picasso's weird relationship with Rembrandt in the last ten years of his life. And there's an essay on Turner's history painting. But um, there is one real kind of, slightly wacky extended essay in the book, in which, which I really do try and because, because the only way, it's about why Ruskin hates rather, I mean not like Orwell's, why did Tolstoy hate Shakespeare, it's why Ruskin absolutely detested Dutch art and his main recommendation for Dutch art was famously putting it all into a single barn and setting fire in it all. and why, 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 why and I try there to, to write, I suppose, a bit self-consciously. I don't think it's the sort, I was going to say with gravitas, but with, uh, give Ruskin, give the mad, sublime delirium of Ruskin, who I rather adore, its due and pay it back with not, not a kind of pastiche Ruskinian delirium, but something pitched high in a, in a, in a Victorian manner. Of, of, of written diction. I, I was conscious of, of doing that. Somebody, very kind reviewer, said, oh, you know, suffers from multiple personality disorder. He met, met, totally, it's probably, I don't think he literally said that. But he said, there is no Simon Charmer style. Now, that's a fantastic compliment to me, really. I mean, again, <laughs> I fear. Um, I, and I, I was going to talk about comic writing, which I'm very fond of. I loved S.J. Paramount. I loved A.J. Liebling. Especially, I loved Twain. Um, American comic writing, Calvin Trillin's good mate of mine, uh, remains unbelievably, uh, it was important to me as a kid, Thurber and Leacock, Canadian, you know what I mean? That was fantastically important to me. It remains Damon Runyon, I, I didn't know quite what that language was, but I knew I loved it. This sort of, uh, but you've got to be good to do that. An extreme test of doing um, things like that. I did an hour of stand-up comedy in Chicago, Jewish jokes, not improv either. That was... Uh, I was about to... Uh, I won't be there, but that was a serious ordeal. Mostly because there were 800 people, many of whom resembled my mother, at her most <laughs> implacable. And the more risky the jokes became, the less she was going to laugh. And if it had been a real comic, you know, if I had been a kind of Jewish Robin Williams, I, of course, would have used it said, hi, mom, you know. But I didn't, I didn't. I just merely soldiered on with the, with the jokes. So there's, there's uh, a rabbi, a, a priest, and <laughs> a pastor. 
And they're going to find out which is the real religion, right? You know, which is the real conquering religion. And where do you do this? Of course, you do it in the Adirondacks. And how do you do it? You convert a bear. It's obvious, isn't it? So they say, we'll meet at four o'clock, see who's done best. So the, the Baptist and the Catholic priest show up. And the Catholic priest says to the Baptist, how'd you get? And he said, well, the word of Jesus was in me, and I preached to the bear, and he was mine. He came to Jesus. I dunked him. He belongs to Jesus. How did you get on? The priest said, well, I went the biscuit route, you know, the communion wafer, um, uh, 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 the mystery of our Lord's Mass. And the, the bear had a, a thing for the, for the communion wafers, and he belongs to St. Peter. He said, where's Moshe in that minute of pathetic bloody figure comes stumbling through the undergrowth and says, oi boys, on, on second thought, circumcision, not the way to go. <laughs> this really is going to be one of our best podcasts. <laughs> We're going to go upstairs and then to the lady down here. There's a gentleman there. Um, you did agree to be podcast, didn't you? <laughs> did we ask you? No. Hi, uh, Patrick Locker. I'm a former LSE student. Um, I'm currently reading uh, Gabriel Yosopovich's new book, Whatever Happened to Modernism? Um, and I was wondering what you thought about its general argument that um, English language novels have um, left behind the uh, lessons of modernism to their detriment. And also, secondly, um, wow. what you think, do you think modernism has had an impact on English language non-fiction writing? Um, who, who, who do, I, I, I know that he, he's published the book, but I, I haven't read it, so you'll have to help me out a bit here. Who does he, um, who does he invoke as the template of English literary modernism in prose? Are we talking about Eliot's lectures, or are he, we, who uh, are we talking about here? He mentions... Which I love, actually. I think he, he mentions yeah El- Eliot's prose. Eliot's writing. prose. Um, yeah. He also I'm... mentions E. M. Foster, Virginia Woolf. Oh, Wolf. okay, okay. Um, um, Beckett as well. Wow, it's re- Beckett. Goodness. Uh, well, Beckett most certainly has not had much effect, I thought, on 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 nonfiction writing. I I think there was a period, and, and he's now saying it's all gone in favour what of post-colonial Rococo, Rushdie at Al, right? Okay. Um, and um, you know, I mean, modernism it, it extracted a, a, a very heavy price, I think, in its affect of plainness. And you know, it depends which bit of Forster you're looking at. Actually, there is, the, if 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 in some sense, the kind of you know masonically hewn austerity. You know, the heart of Howard's end is the kind of the Twilight Zone ooh, moment with Beethoven's Fifth or Ditto in the Malabar Cave. And that is a kind of modernism, but it's a modernism with kind of moments of metaphysical madness, really. That's why, I, that's why I'm being a bit fussy about what the template is. But if I had to say, you know, who then became exemplars of a, a slightly sort of self-conscious modernist non-fiction style, I would invoke Bruce Chatwin. Um, I would invoke the wonderful loony James Hamilton Patterson, who I think was you know, not read enough. I know what's happened to him, but I don't know him. I, I, I think a lot of... And I, I'm invoking two people who move over from you know, what loosely be called... I guess Paddy Lee Firma. These are all sort of us travel writers in a weird way, but they, they have that same sort of you know, extreme where sharpness and vividness depend on each other. 
what's happened to it? Well, you know, if we say, well, what's happened to it is the empire fights back and, and other kinds of voices which are much more imprinted with saga and with a de declamatory view of chronicle, um, whether it's Australian, whether it's, you know, David Malu for Peter Carey, um, or indeed, you know, astonishing Arundhati Roy, and, you know, all that Kiran Desai, the two Desais. Uh, that's only to be welcomed, I think, actually. I, uh, you know, so modernism has to, but, you know, modernism, I know it's not a book that, uh, does it deal much with painting? It doesn't, does it? I mean, it does deal with visual as well. Does it? See, modernism really, in that sense, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. It doesn't really take root. It's quite extraordinary because of the English, uh, you know, the wiring of representational plastic art in, in England is so unable, in my view, wonderfully unable, of severing itself from narrative. You know, the ghost of Hogarth um, is so strong, actually, that narrative in some ways, or, or content, comes, you know, roaring back, really. So that the great post-war... I mean, I, I don't mean simple narrative, but, but unmodernist. But Francis Bacon is an unmodernist painter, in my view. Lucian Freud, God knows, is an unmodernist painter. The moment of abstract severity is incredibly brief, and belongs to Naum Garbo, and very well to Victor Passmore and Ben Nicholson, but wow, it's, it's really kind of brief. Um, and there is something really about the, the need to engage with a kind of earthy connection in English. I don't know what it is. Chaucer, so I'm not sure what it is. Um, that is inhospitable. I mean, we're talking about Eliot, the American Pound, the American Beckett, the Irish classicists. We're not talking about people, you know, and that is the great Eliot-Auden divide, isn't it? Auden is a sort of modernist, but he's, he's closer to Larkin and Petroman, if you like, than he is to Eliot in, in essential ways. So I, I, I think it, it takes an act of strenuous um, sort of sensibility amputation, really. I think. It's not surprising to me that modernism was left behind. Henry Green, I think, was a modernist. Has Henry Green had an effect on non-fiction? I wouldn't know where to look. I don't think so. But I love, I love, I love his work. I've seen quite a few hands now. Two down here and then a lady at the back. So. Hi, I was going to Hi. ask a question about writing too. Um, I'm Helen Weinstein Hi. and I was Hi. in Cambridge in that later era where we were all meant to be fighting with each other and we kind of refused. So it was kind of the cusp <laughs> of 80s into 90s where there was a huge group working with Jardine and then Wrightson and Spufford and Duffy right. and we were always being asked by the senior people, so what's really going on because of these huge mm. intellectual wars going on and there were about a cohort of about 60 of us doing PhDs and um, we didn't fight. So it was a problem. Because also then about three or four of us went off into the BBC, as you know, and then right. became uh, producers for a while, have been going in and out of academia. But it's always been a struggle, I think, for our generation to, to write well. And a big part of our jobs as producers is trying to help academics write well. And this seems to be a transition that, you know, now I've read the beginning, particularly of Scribble Scribble, I can see where that's come from in you. But you know, writing as a journalist for copy is very different from writing to the discipline of a script, that kind of creativity and discipline you need for writing for TV and radio. So I'd like you to reflect a bit about how do you draw on Cobb and Hazlitt at all for that type of writing? Um, I lost you a bit at the end, Helen. You, you meant actually the, the sort of meat and potatoes journalism. 
Well, I never really, I wasn't, you know, I did do a bit of reporting, actually, of Harry Evans, my friend. I mean, as a sort of incredible cub reporter, kind of gopher reporter with the Insight team, which is fantastic. But, but I never thought I was particularly good at it, never really wanted to do it. Um, it was always the, the, you know, comment, kind of commentary, as sort of now grimly called, um, that sort of thing. And, and the stuff I do for um, the FT, you know, the you know, it, nearly all on, on the weekend stuff, they, they give me the luxury of being able to opine a bit or reflect actually on um, a, a, a bit more loosely in a way which does indeed draw on that, on that tradition. Do you um, find it then hard to write TV? Well, it's a totally different skill. I mean, I, I guess the most important thing, which I, I, I didn't answer your question very well, is, is that... That is, it, script writing is a, is a very particular, very particular skill. You know very well, and um, and you have to relearn. What you can't do is bring your book to a script. You have to, you know, and and those of us, you and I. I mean, I draw a line down the page, and you. I, I always wrote charts. You know, I mean, I always wrote charts, and it would only work for me, even if the director giggles and throws most of the charts away. But we would talk about it, and very often charts weren't thrown away, and and. and Arrogant enough to say, but I could only really do it if I if I had in mind um, the shots I sort of wanted to, to work with, it. and all sorts of things that you would do, even in in, in you know Haslitian sort of um, speculative kind of writing. I mean that Indian juggler scene are uh, instantly redundant because you're going to you're going to shoot those you know things. You're not going to just you're not going to commit a redundancy. You never the rule in television filmmaking is never show and tell at the same time. You know, the two have to be doing different things if you're going to be good at it, really. So that's another skill. But I do, I have had students at Columbia and Harvard who've gone on to, you know, a woman called Beverly Gage wrote a wonderful book on the bomb plot in 1922, but she works for the History Channel, does things. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's just that you can't, in television filmmaking, you can't, I was always, you know, made a huge issue of never you know, I mean, being receptive to, to directors and producers' suggestions and corrections and changes in the script, but I would never want to work with anybody else's script. But you can't just sort of swan on to the location. You can if you're willing to be fed a script. And some directors like to feed their presenters, really, with what they think is going to fit the location. But when I did History of Britain, um, I did say to Janice Hadler, you know... Um, I, if I do this, and I for a long time thought I didn't want to do it, so I knew enough about television, it was it'll eat my life. And it did, but in a, in a wonderful way. Um, uh, I, I want to really, uh, you know, I want to pay television the compliment of learning basic editing skills, learning a little about lighting. I'm not going to pretend to be a director. If director drops dead, you know, can I do it? Probably not. But I want to know enough. To, I'm going to be a pest. I'm going to want to come into the cutting room. I, you know, I did, still do. Um, now I, you know, it, it depends on some some directors. You know, Claire likes me to be there at the sound mix. I'm often with Power of Art. I was always at the grade, at the color grade. All the, so in some sense, it, that was part of another whole set of skills, like my cookery writing. You know, that's another set skill set, and it has a different voice to it. Those of you who want the best burger in your life because it's going to be made from bison meat, which you can get. There is British bison, and it is fucking wonderful. And you can get it online. And um, go and rush out and do something which almost no LSE community member will ever do, but you're going to do this by GQ, and you'll find Sharma 
on bison burgers in there. <laughs> it will change your lives. <laughs> Virginia Beardshaw, and moving on from GQ, uh, thank you for making me remember a lot of the great people who taught me at Cambridge and also here at the LSE. Um, but I wanted to ask you a question about how it was that you chose that gap around French history and the French Revolution. All of the audience here probably are wondering, like I am, was it Dickens? Oh, and, and uh, oh, is so it why I wanted to be? Um, why you? Why you? No, it's, uh, well, yes, but it was really Carlyle. Oh, well, okay. it opened Carlyle, who my dad loved, because Carlyle is full of kind of mad, roaring fury. My dad was a bit like that. He used to stand. I was in little debate teams, little Jewish white and white tie debate teams. You know, in falsetto years, eleven-year-olds should Britain abandon its should Britain abandon its nuclear deterrent? And, and my father would stand at the back and go. Louder, Simon, louder. <laughs> you can't get louder than Carlyle. You know, there is an essay on Carlyle and language. It's almost kind of homage to my, my to old Arthur, to my dad. And I didn't know, when you open Carlyle's French Revolution, I, I give it to stunned students, actually, at Columbia, when we're talking about voice in historical writing, non-fiction voice. And I thought, what is this? You know, and famously, it was described by one Victorian critic as Germano-Scottish. And but I realised you had to read Carlyle out loud. But the sort of sense of extraordinary ferocious proximity, the opposite of historical detachment, for good or ill, and there's a good argument to make for it, for ill, but really of actually pushing your face into the heat and madness of the moment, and sort of. Yeah, um, you know, Carlyle stands in a relation to mimesis to what he describes. Since the French revolutionaries are themselves, be they ordinary people or declaiming orators, intensely theatrical. So that was a very, very important. I lectured on the French Revolution in Cambridge when I, when I was still working on the Dutch thing, but it was Dutch in the period of the French Revolution. And uh, there are people who claim, I have no memory of this, but anybody here heard me lecturing as a young Don in the French Revolution here? Good. But it's claimed that I stood on... Oh, oh really? Did I, <laughs> did I stand on tables? And some people say, I, at some point, I stood on tables being... Camille Desmoulins or something. I honestly, I, I think it's apocryphal, right? You didn't see me standing. Oh, did you? Okay, but but it was, um, but I but I was I did think that, and, and there's actually a very serious point. I did think before there was a word for it that the French Revolution was. Uh, and I, I, I hadn't discovered Saussure, much less the post-structuralist. But I did think it was a kind of language event. I did think it was a language event. And, and I knew there was something wrong with the kind of Marxist reductionism which followed, you know, grain price. Grain prices, of course, counted. People starving to death. So it counted. But I also, I also knew that there was, there was nothing... You know, it wasn't about the bourgeoisie slamming their heads against the redundant legal institution of the Ancien Regime, because you, you couldn't read in the French Revolution and not realise that the clergy and a very important minority of the aristocracy were the people who set fire to their own, the institutions of their own class. So what does that tell us? That tells us that they are in a some sort of other world. And it was not Albert Mathias's world, it was Alphonse Ola's world. So I went and pulled from the library um, in, I think I was in, I think from the Bodleian, I think it was in Oxford, ancient 
collections of French revolutionary speeches. And then the Carlylean childhood thing came back to me. And I thought, and I, I remember Lynn Hunt, I met at a conference in the early 70s. Yeah, I was indeed a young Don at Oxford. And it was both our sort of dirty secrets. We're both supposed to be hardcore social historians. And we we're both saying there is something going on that we have to understand actually about a revolution in speech as actually having a kind of causative effect really on issues of allegiance and. And, and citizenship and so on. Yeah. Last question. Hello, Simon. Uh, my name is Bernadette Benatti. I'm a former student at the LSE. Um, I've got one very small question for you. Uh-oh. You mentioned, yes, exactly. Um, you mentioned Herodotus and oh, you yeah. mentioned Beckett and Auden. And I feel as if there's a bit of Homer in you, and I'll qualify <laughs> that. But I just wanted to know was there any room for poetry and whether that was the next stage? Oh, <laughs> um, that is the nicest question. If only. I adore poetry more. I'm more jealous of poets than any other kind of writing. It's my bedside reading um, from you know, contemporary American poets. I love Louise Gluck. I, I knew Dennis Levitoff a bit, who was not so American, but lived in Seattle. I knew Amy Clampett a bit. I even met the horrif- horrible Lowell, but you know, he was a god to me. Um, Seamus, yeah, uh, Derek Walcott is a good pal. Seamus is sort of a pal. Um, I, no, I can't do it. I, I do what I do, which dangerously comes close to a kind of cod poetry. Um, I, the only time I ever wrote a long poem was to a girl who dumped me. Um, <laughs> when And I, this seems to be a theme which opened and now will close the evening and compared her to a spider. Um, uh, I never sent it to her, actually. Not because I didn't really hate her, which I really did at that moment, but I realised the poem was truly awful. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for asking. It's in here, isn't it? I'm just going to finish very quickly with a notice and three thank yous. Uh, the notice is that Simon's going to come off this way, and if you could let him go out first, that would be really helpful. Then he can get to the books and do the signings. Um, three quick thank yous. First, I think the audience for some great, very lovely questions. Yes, thank you. Wonderful story. questions. Secondly, uh, to the event you. staff, always at LSE. We have a great uh, event programme here. But the LSE is not always associated with the arts, but we do have a literary festival in February. It's free and open to the public. So uh, do come along, and partly Simon's lecture is connected to that. Uh, and lastly, I mean, just very quickly, Simon, um, I'd like to thank you on behalf, I think, of all of the audience for your <laughs> We're going to do that for your sparkiness and, and the generosity of spirit. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Very much.